Hello and welcome to the Innovation Forum podcast for Friday 24th September with me, Ian Welsh. Recently, I caught up with Palm Oil Business Musum Masses, Director of Sustainable Supply Chain, Olivier Tichet. We talked about what he wants to see coming out of the COP26 climate talks in Scotland in a few weeks and how to link government-level outcomes to impacts on the ground. And we discussed the importance of financial inclusion for smallholder farmers, something that's been seriously lacking. Plus, we've got some news of Innovation Forum's Climate Action Conference coming up next week. That's all to come. First, some sustainable business news. Food and beverage giant PepsiCo has launched a new sustainability framework titled PEP Plus that brings together a number of the company's ESG programs encompassing sourcing, production and sale of its products and, PepsiCo says, inspiring consumers via its brands. The PEP Plus framework has three key pillars, positive agriculture, positive value chains and positive choices. The first of these will work to spread regenerative practices across the company's agricultural footprint. The second will coordinate the company's climate-related goals, including to achieve net zero emissions and being water positive by 2040. And the third will cover initiatives to develop the company's brand portfolio so that they are better for the planet and consumers. Among new packaging goals are that PepsiCo will cut virgin plastic per serving by 50% across its global portfolio by 2030, using 50% recycled content in plastic packaging. Another initiative is to grow the SodaStream brand that allows consumers to reuse bottles making soft drinks at home rather than via branded single-use plastic bottles. Company chair and CEO Ramon LaGuarta described PEP Plus as a fundamental transformation of what the company does and how it does it. A new report from Carbon Tracker and the Climate Accounting Project says that the top corporate carbon emitters are not disclosing the full risks associated with climate change, lessening the chances of meeting the Paris climate goals. 107 listed companies were assessed in the study, including in the oil and gas and transportation sectors, and more than 70% were found to have come up short in terms of reflecting the full risks from climate change in their 2020 accounts. A lack of consistency between pledges made on climate change and how they are reflected in company filings is not a new charge, of course. But continuing to not assess climate risks properly and publicly demonstrate this means it's more difficult to ascertain progress towards global decarbonisation. On a national level, only one country is currently on course to deliver climate action that is in alignment with the 1.5 Celsius pathway, according to research from Climate Action Tracker. And that country is Gambia. Seven others are classified as being almost sufficiently delivering, including the UK, and the US and the EU are classified as insufficient, with Russia on the critically insufficient naughty step. The tracker estimates that current efforts will see global emissions by 2030 at twice the rate required for limiting warming to 1.5 Celsius. Finally, a few words to mark the passing of John Ruggie, who as the UN Secretary-General's Special Representative for six years, created the guiding principles on business and human rights that have been the basis for best practice corporate behaviour ever since. As an obituary on the website of Shift Project says, Professor Ruggie had a gift for developing tools of tangible change and a passion for making the world a more equal place. Coming up next week from the 27th to 29th is the first in Innovation Forum's Autumn Conference Programme, where we will be talking about the future for climate action and how business can tackle greenhouse gases in supply chains. To find out the latest about the event, I spoke with my Innovation Forum colleague, Conference Director Hannah Halmari. Welcome back to the podcast, Hannah. Thanks, Ian. So we're almost there. How's the event coming together? We're looking great. You know, we have a full agenda. 
fantastic speaker lineup and we've just given attendees access to the conference platforms. We're ready to go. Excellent. I'm sure people will be organizing one-to-one -one meetings and other catching up with colleagues and other contacts already. If you are coming to the conference, please do use that facility from now. So are there any late additions to the speaker roster, Hannah? Yeah, we've actually had quite a few. So we have Jennifer Keeson. She's the US head of sustainability at IKEA. And she'll be speaking on the opening plenary on how business can turn climate risk into opportunity. And then we've also had David Antonioli, the CEO of Vera, and Aaron Bloomgarden, the executive director at Emergent. They'll both be speaking on the topic of offsets and looking at how the market there is evolving. And then we also have Neil Cool, the director of food and retail supply chains at BSI America. And he'll be speaking on the panel that looks beyond operations and offsets, so focusing on the environmental solutions that are available. Yes, certainly the carbon markets and the offsetting and the, the voluntary carbon markets in particular are certainly exploding at the moment. Uh, over a billion dollars this year so far in the voluntary carbon market, and it's only set to increase. So I'm certainly looking forward to talking about that with Aaron and David and also Jamie Mulligan from Amazon. Okay, so what are you particularly excited about, Hannah? Well, so I'm looking forward to hearing from all of our speakers. You know, they'll be sharing their insights, experiences, and most importantly, I think, practical examples and the solutions available. But I'm also looking forward to hearing from all of our attendees. As you know, we have a number of open discussion formats throughout the three days. Our attendees will have the chance to share their own insights, perspectives, and experiences. So I'm looking forward to everyone's contribution. As am I. So, listeners, it's the 27th, 28th, 29th of September. We'll be holding it on US Eastern Time, but there's still spaces available, so do join us if you can. Full details on the Innovation Forum website. But Hannah, thanks very much for now. Thanks, Ian. Something else I'm very much looking forward to next week is a live webinar from Kenya's Kasigao Corridor Red Plus project. I'll be speaking on Thursday the 30th at 2pm UK time with project coordinators and community leaders about how the local population is benefiting from the project while saving their forests and cutting carbon emissions and preserving biodiversity. You can sign up for free. There is a link in the podcast description to watch live or to receive a recording to listen to and share with your colleagues at your leisure. Coming up next month, we'll be focusing on the future of plastics with Unilever, Walmart, Coca-Cola, Mars and many others over three days from the 11th to the 13th of October. And save £100 on three-day passes if you are quick and register by close on the 21st September. And our flagship Sustainable Landscapes and Commodities Conference returns on the 30th of November to 2nd of December, when 300-plus delegates will be learning from the insights of Tesco, Dole Food, Muslim Mass, the RSPO and many more. And you can save £150 on 3D conference passes if you register before the end of the month. Thinking ahead to our Landscapes event, a few days ago I spoke with Muslim Mass Director of Sustainable Supply Chain, Olivier Tichet. He gave his COP26 wish list and talked about the importance of ground level up initiatives alongside the big goals coming from government level meetings. All eyes are turning towards the COP26 meetings in Scotland. So what do you want to see come out of these meetings from the perspective of the palm oil sector or in terms of help for small farmers? What do you want to see and what do you expect to see? If I look at the Glasgow COP, I see they have set four goals. And so there are a few things on my wish list, I would say, to follow those four goals. On renewables, we need to see some now some design and some deployment, actually, of solutions including possibly vehicles, actually, that actually work in the rural context for plantations and for small farmers. I believe we are focused a bit too much maybe on the urban or the big connected cities, but not so much on the rural sector. 
We need to have a positive impact there. We need to see some change there. I see there's another element of agriculture and about resilient agriculture. So obviously for us, resilient agriculture, it's critical for our business. I mean, our business model is agriculture. We're an agricultural company eventually. We have a business and we have an industry which is already quite resilient, but we need to consider further how to climate-proof it. Why? Because we are dealing with a perennial crop. So we need to have to think really long-term, 25-year cycles. How do we improve practices to preserve or even further augment soil fertility? How do we continue developing new varieties, but this time looking at how they can be tolerant to drought, to floods, basically to extreme weather? How do we do that? Third point, which is one of the goals of the COP, is financing. How should the finance and banking sector get more involved, and in particular in our sector? I think that the banks and the financial institutions, they're, they're always afraid of conflict of interest when they get involved into landscapes or into multi-stakeholder initiatives. But I think they still must get involved. It's, it's about, about not so much about how they regulate or how they move things, but how they will find solutions that work in the producing landscapes. There's still plenty of work to do because every landscape is really different. Every country is different. The financial institutions still have a lot of work to do, I think. Finally, COP obviously calls for more collaboration. And so I think there the UN and the governments at various levels remain great enablers. So they enable what we can do. I believe that there is obviously a tendency of cascading down from a big strategy and cascading down requirements and good ideas sometimes actually, but the tendency is to cascade down. I think it's all right to have very broad guiding goals or to have even good ideas which are shown at the higher levels, but we need to genuinely build from the ground up if you want it to be lasting. We need to balance that between the broad goals, but then how do you build from the ground up? You cannot drop things down and expect them to grow. You need to build from the ground up. The conflict of interest you mentioned for the financial sector, perhaps you explain a little bit more. What sort of conflicts of interest do you think that the financial sector see? The banks in particular, they are quite wary when they are in a multi-stakeholder initiative. Oh, but this person is one of my customers and maybe also have a relationship with the regulators, which is the government. How do I avoid finding myself as a banking institution in the wrong place or saying the wrong thing, releasing the wrong information or influencing a process that could be seen as being in favor of my industry or releasing or using information that I have from my customers? incorrectly. At least they've expressed that quite often in multi-stakeholder initiatives. They find that they are a bit conflicted there. And I believe, yes, it's true that they have to follow their rules. I mean, they should not be conflicted, but at the same time, they really must get involved. I mean, we need to have that banking sector involved. It's not about the money. It's about how we organize things, what ideas they can give as well. I mean, they are critical. The money has to speak in a way in that case, and to see how we can better coordinate or how we can better link one with the other. So the producers and the smallers most of the time and the mills, let's say, for example, in our industry, how does the banking sector, what role can it have there? And the banks have to be, I think, very active. They should be very active. I think it's something we'll talk about a bit later. It's not a matter of competitiveness. It should be non-competitive. I mean, we must get to a point now where it's less competitive. Sustainability should not be an element of competitiveness. I like your wish list. So you're looking for more collaboration. You want to see better financing. You want climate-proof resilience in agriculture and a more efficient look at use of renewables in a rural setting. So that's a great wish list. So what do you think will be the outcomes of COP26 then? 
<laughs> Maybe I'm too close to the ground. So I do not know what it will be. I'm not sure how much will come out of this COP. I think it's been delayed already one year, so maybe people had a lot of time to prepare. Or maybe it will be just another too high-level, too populated forum for real practical things to come out. But it doesn't prevent us from putting those questions. And I think the adaptation of the big solutions or the big ideas to the rural sector, and in particular for renewable energy, I think that's something where we're only thinking, oh, let's have solar panels. Yes, solar panels work today. That's fine. I mean, let's move on. Now, the next challenge is how do we move things? How do you take things from that valley to the other valley, from that farm to a mill? And how do you do that in a way that supports a transition to renewable energies? It can be very hard to link the outcomes of a government-level meeting to real impacts on the ground. But how do you think these positive impacts can best be translated into actual supply chains and down to growing communities in the palm oil sector and beyond? That's where I believe we have to look at the big goals, but we have to look at every landscape on its own. And that's why I say we need to build from the ground up. We need to find initiatives or things that will gather people at the local level and with, that they, feel, they will feel they own. Basically, that sense of ownership, I think, of change is something that is difficult when you see those big cops, let's say in Glasgow, if I ask most of people around me, where is Glasgow? Nobody could point it on a map, I'm afraid. Sorry, Ian. So we, people will know where the, the local district is. We know the big goals. I think that has been done already. So now we need to let people find their solutions at the local level, or at least solutions that they can own and that they will build from which they will build. Like I said, we know the big goals. Let's see how now we get people in the movement. I think it's more about getting people moving than getting them thinking about the bigger goals. The bigger goal of, let's say, 1.5 degrees, 2 degrees maximum, that's not something that will speak to the smallholder. If we tell them about how do you use better, how do you ensure that your palms will still yield because you see that there are fewer rains, that is something that we'll understand or that the rains are scattered now, not as even as they used to be. That is something that we'll understand. And that's the pathway in. So to summarize, maybe the best thing we can do is to find the pathways for people to adhere now, to get moving. So for a farmer in particular, it will be look at the weather around you and how do you think you can adapt to it? You understand there are changes. How do you adapt to it? And that's the way in. And from that, we can build around it. But you cannot just come and say, we need to keep the temperature to increase further. That will not speak to people. You cannot build further on that if you arrive from, the, from such a high-level target. Absolutely. Adaptability to climate and resilience is so important right now. So much of the focus of debate. Obviously, the past year and a half have been a challenge for everybody. So thinking in terms of resilience for palm oil, how would you characterize the challenges that have been thrown up by the pandemic since the start of 2020 and how they impacted on the sector's resilience? Well, our sector has, has been impacted like every other sector, has been challenged like every other sector. Uh, obviously, the, the priority was safety for all workers and continuity of business, or so logistics in particular. There are, I think there are a couple of differences. Plantations in particular, they are fully responsible for the safety of their workers. They're on site, but also with their families. So you have workers and families on site. And most of the time, you're in a remote area. So you have to be very, very committed and very, very careful. Farmers and small plantation companies, I think, or let's say small producers, resilience, I think it's their nature as a start. The good news for all of us was that vegetable oils have remained in, in high demand throughout the pandemic. So the resilience of our sector was supported and in a way rewarded by 
and a good economic return and good economic stability for our sector. And I think that has created some islands of stability, which are necessary. And actually, with the price of vegetable oils quite high, also it has created islands of generosity. I think our sector has been able to support and to donate quite generously. We have been challenged, but I think by essence, we've managed to be resilient and we are coming out of this not happier, but at least quite strong. Let's think a bit about independent smallholder farmers then. Obviously very important for the palm oil sector, palm oil supply, and a lack of access to an understanding of finance has been a major concern. You just touched on it just now. And Muslim Mass has been involved in a programme to promote financial inclusion for smallholders. So what's this programme trying to achieve? And, and how do you characterise the importance of financial inclusion for smallholder farmers? Smallholder farmers tend to be in remote areas, by definition. And by definition, then that means also they are quite cut off from opportunities to learn about what can the banking sector offer to them. They live in an economy which is not closed. Huh? They are open people. They have phones. They've got smartphones like everybody. But the possibilities for them to be approached by, again, we go back to by being approached by services that will bring them, that will put themselves at their level is quite limited. So what we're trying to do goes both ways. One way is to provide or to channel to the farmers information and education about what can you do with banking? What extra can you get from banking? It's not about just putting your money in the bank or borrowing. What more can you do? How do you save money? How do you manage your money better in a way? And also to say, you think you don't have enough money to be really interesting for the banks. Well, see, there are actually banking services that are accessible to you as well. The other side of it is to try and work with the banking sector. In that case, in particular, it was with NUFG to see how they can also further adapt or how they can access better the smallholders and how they can adapt their approach to the smallholders and see what does interest a smallholder and what do they have to offer that can be of use to a smallholder. At the end of the day, because of the resilient nature of the smallholders, they are obviously quite conservative. So you have to bring them something which has value. They're not going to jump the latest trend. They are going to be very rational in their choices. And that's where I think there still is a bit of work. How do we get them services which are affordable and which are interesting to them? What's in it for them, basically? And for the banks as well, it's how do they provide that support? I think the banks are willing for most of them to approach that section of the economy, of the population, but they have to find something that's of use as well. So to that target audience for them, it goes both ways. And I guess that for this program, like so many others, scalability is a challenge. But to achieve that scalability, is collaboration is going to be essential. So I wondered, do you have any thoughts around where collaboration is in the sector, particularly thinking around smallholder farmers? Are you seeing any trends around collaboration that are giving you cause for optimism? To see there is collaboration, it makes me already a bit more optimistic. And there is collaboration. We see, we see that there's a couple of initiatives. I mean, there's decent rural livelihoods initiatives, which were a part as well. So that's a collection of best practices. How do we share best practices? How do we get people to adopt them? And that's, that's very nice. But I think we need to accelerate change in terms of collaboration. Collaborating or being nice to one another and sharing good stories is good. I think we need to go a bit further. Sustainability remains a bit of a competitive item. It should not. We really need to expand the non-competitive collaboration, and that should be recognized. Broader collaboration, non-competitive, and we need to accelerate a little bit. I think otherwise we will not be in time to contribute to the UNFCCC goals. Huh? 
It's going to be interesting to see how the COP26 meeting proceeds and what uh, outcomes there are. I hope that you'll be pleasantly surprised at some collaboration that's coming out of the meeting thereafter. But as ever, thank you very much, Olivier, for your insights into the palm oil sector. It's been fascinating, as it always is. Thanks very much indeed. Thank you very much, Ian. Don't forget to sign up for the live webinar from Kenya's Kasago Corridor Red Plus project coming up on Thursday 30th September. And I look forward to seeing podcast listeners at the Climate Action event next week in the networking sessions. Do go to the Innovation Forum website for more information on all of that and for the usual analysis and interviews. But that's it for now. I've been Neil Welsh. Until next week, goodbye.